audio stuff correctly. No, but now it's okay. So I'm, happens to the best of us, uh, and some and others of us too. Mm. <laughs> so this wasn't on my list of possible uh, show discussion topics, but. Um, just prior to coming on the call, you shared with me that you were shaving your head. Do you find that you have different dreams after you shave your head? Uh, um, I haven't noticed it. How long do you let your hair get before you shave your head? I sh- my head is my calendar. Uh, tomorrow is the 307th moon of my calendar, is the, the new moon. And I always okay. shave my head on the night before the new moon and the okay. night before the full moon. So it only grows for about 14 or 15 days. I used to just do it once a month. Hmm. But uh, or once a moon, excuse me. Uh, but it was uh, it. I don't know. It just got too shaggy. So, but every even yeah. At the end of two weeks, I'm ready to cut it. Yes. Yeah. Now I used to shave my head in my late teens, and uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. After you know, really for me, after about five or six days, it got to be kind of irritating and itchy, and uh, time to shave again. Yeah. Uh, it's. I don't. I actually, you know, I actually misspoke. I didn't really uh, shave it. I didn't take a, you know, a razor. Oh, okay. You know, I uh, I have a pair of clippers that cut it oh, okay. to about a thirty second of an inch. It's oh, okay. a, a okay. tiny amount. But I'm way too lazy to. <laughs> One of my uh, well, the guy who's the publisher who shaves his head every day. Yes. You know, I I don't know how long that takes, but that that wasn't my objective when I started this, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, I like what it looks like when it's uh, newly cut. Certainly. But, uh, you know, not enough to do it every day. (laughs) I found the quality of my dreams change dramatically, even with, you say, just that slight kind of peach fuzz. It generates just enough warmth around the scalp. And I found a distinct quality of dream really? difference when I had a shaved head. What was and the it difference? Was really night and day. Very gothic, very dark. Yeah, uh, very when, you, high when it was newly shaved, or yes, yeah. I would have dreams that were of that, and I associated with it just because I was losing so much heat through my scalp. And it <laughs> well, changed. That's, I guess, changed as good a theory dreams. as anything. So, yes. Well, I mean, that's, how does that explain the gothic nature of them? Though I don't get that. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess my sense was, uh, I don't know, losing heat, you sharper gradients, probably less less grays. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It made no sense, but I yeah. tried to but justify. But this is fairly re- reliable, though. How long uh, did you do this? Maybe nine months. Okay, and, and, every, and you shave your head every day? No, no, not every no, day. No, like no, that's right. Saying, yeah, right. in so a kind of. About once a week, then. Though. Yeah, yeah. Through, through most of the period, okay, about so once that's a week. quite a few times. And, and, and you would say the day of the shaving and the day after even? Well, I would shave it in the evening, and I think this is part okay. of the, I mean, you should, so I think there was, there was a kind of rich, and um, I was living on campus at the time, and it, I don't know, it was a strange, it was a strange period in my life. Um, but uh, no, I, I actually quite miss it. I mean, I, I joke with my wife occasionally that I might do it. But we've got a wedding coming up, as you know, so I can't do anything too drastic. Although my wife, 
haircut. What, what do you mean uh, you can't do anything because I have a bit of a reputation, Heron. Let's just oh, put it that way. Well, yeah, but I mean, wouldn't this be the perfect opportunity to shed that? Yeah, completely ruin all wedding photos. And yes, no, I'm I'm keeping a low profile for this wedding, Heron. I'm just letting it happen. I'm okay. not going to be. All a, right. Look at me. I, I can do plenty of other things, and this is not. You got to pick your battles in life, Heron. Yeah, you gotta pick yeah your no, battles. you're right. See, that's the difference. See, that's the thing is you uh, you are actually connected to another human being in a way that I am not. <laughs> so, yes. so uh, you know, those are things I don't have to consider. Well, I do have to consider them, sort of, but uh, they, you know, I can pretty much <laughs> do whatever the hell I want. Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. So I have a list of topics here this evening, and the first one I wanted to talk about was your life in the 1980s, because I find myself occasionally returning to my life experience in the 1980s, but you that was a period of time where you were both... Did, did you tune pianos through some part of the 1980s? Oh, yeah, most of the 80s. Yeah. Okay. But you were also teaching English, and no, you no, also... No, 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 I wasn't teaching. All ah. I was doing was tuning pianos and reading books and being a hermit. Okay, but you also... Wasn't that the period of time management as well, where you taught a course on time yeah, management? Yeah, you know, it was around then. Yeah, it was sometime in the 80s. <laughs> Don't try to pin me down. Um, well, and it was not just time management. I also did a whole thing about language, and but it was all sort of mixed in with time management and stuff. I didn't call it time management. I don't remember what I did call it now, but oh, and time this... binder. That's what I called it, time binder, in okay. uh, for um, Alfred Korzybski's work because that had a big influence on it. Hmm. And is this prior to you going to a McKenna talk or after you going to a McKenna talk? Uh, that must have been before. Okay. Okay. So to describe Heron in the, say, the early 1980s. Oh, what I, haven't, about- I haven't got a clue, honestly, and it's of no interest to me. Uh, I was uh, a pretty much a hermit, I think. You know? I mean, I did, at the time, I don't think I liked the idea of being a hermit. Uh-huh. But, but, you know, so I was probably still trying to be a... I didn't... I mean, I still thought I was a human, see, at that point. Uh-huh. So uh, I was still plagued by, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't fit in. <laughs> and your son was born in 1983 or 1982? Something like that, yeah. 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 So, yeah. sorry, continue. No, no I was going to say how old he is, but I don't really know. I think he said he was 28. but I, I think he's 27 or 28. Yeah, yeah. 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 So... Okay, so you're you're giving absolutely no description to what life in L.A. in the, eight, in yeah, the early in 80s. The 80s. Yeah, um, well, because I can't, I can only tell you what my life was like. And my well, life was like tuning pianos and being home reading. Uh-huh. So what kind of stuff were you reading in the early 80s? Um, oh, God. <laughs> The hard questions. Uh, yeah, really. You know, I'd have to go back and look at the bibliography and reconstruct it. And actually, again, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm not really sure what it is that you're interested in, in drawing out, but I have very little interest in the past. And so I don't give it much consideration. Um, 
I mean, I'm certainly willing to pursue this, but I, I'm thinking Let's if, pursue if, it for a few more minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I was going to suggest, if there's something in specific you want to go for, I mean, you, I can't be offended. So, so I, I, you know, I, I have a small number of memories from the 80s as well. I, I was obviously a different age, different place, different time. But the thing that I've taken away from the 80s, and these are repressed memories, these are memories that I've discovered later, uh, all seem to relate to kind of American cultural aspects and particularly, um, well, popular American cultural aspects, but things that affected me very greatly. We've had some kind of discussion about my uh, life in Australia and particularly the kind of cloistered environment, cloistered intellectual environment that my yeah. parents created around me. But the things that I remember from the 80s and the early 80s in particular was a couple of savage sort of Conan comics um, that a fellow smuggled into a craft class uh, which exposed me to a wide variety of, of death and sex scenes um, at a relatively early age. Uh, what else do I have here? Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Now, that was after my parents got divorced, so that must have been the late 80s, uh, because my mother was bought... Was the 80s disco, or was that the 70s? That was the 70s, was I think. The early 80s. I think the uh, uh, hair metal... I mean, Guns N' Roses is the other thing that... Uh, I'd certainly, again, this is the late see, 80s. Yeah, yeah, I'd, see, I'd already checked out. I, I had yeah. nothing to do with society, really. I mean, I had a television and I watched it, but uh, like the music, I remember, uh, in fact, that I gave up on music. I remember very clearly the day it happened, there was a radio station. Well, you were in L.A. I don't remember, I don't remember when this 1990, was. 1990, but continue. This was probably before that. Uh, yes, sir. There was a radio station uh, that, whose name I can't remember right now. No, I think it was KPPC at the time. There still is a KPPC, but it's new owners, new format, and everything. <clears throat> and there, but KPPC was a very strange radio station. It was FM stereo, played mostly rock and roll stuff for you know people who were stoners and stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, they, the DJs were really an eclectic bit bunch, and they had pretty much the freedom to do anything they wanted to. And so they, they played a lot of classical music and jazz, and they talked and. And they really built a rapport with their audience, at least with me. And, and I knew there was a whole bunch of other people all around L.A. who felt this. It's like when I, you drive around your car uh, listening to KPPC, and it was like sort of like the Internet, I guess. I, I felt like a community. I knew there were other people out there listening to the same stuff and getting off on it, you know. And then one day uh, I turned that radio station on and... Uh, it was a new format. Mm. It was somebody, some Christian. It turns out some Christian group didn't like what they heard going on there, <laughs> and they bought the station oh and goodness. turned it into Top Forty. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh. And that was it. I tried listening to a couple of our stations, and they were all just commercial bullshit. And it was the same old fucking music over and over again. Mm. And. Um, and that was it. There was, you know, so there was nothing, there was no point in listening to the radio anymore. Mm. Yeah, I guess when I arrived in L.A., I had that experience as well. That, uh, and in fact, groups that I followed made jokes about how bad L.A. radio was. Um, but I, the, the thing that I found was missing in L.A., and please correct me, but, I mean, there weren't any kind of community radio stations. UCLA and... Uh, USC and these kind of places. I think they... KPFK was on the air then. Okay. 
KPFK is the only one that I'm... Well, and KUSC was on the air back then, okay. I believe. But those... And there may have been more. Uh-huh. But I'm sure, pretty sure about those two. Right. And but what KUSC was... The was like with them? I'm sorry, what? What was the quality like with them? Well, KUSC was basically just... It was a classical music station from the, uh-huh. from the university. And basically, they played classical music. So it was just sort of standard format. And KPFK was pretty much the same then as it is now. <laughs> right. So for the benefit of those not in L.A., what was it like? Oh, KP- oh if they're not in L.A., screw them. They don't count. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good, Aaron. You know, KPFK is... A- Look, I'm... Yeah, boy, what an attitude. Uh- <laughs> um is Pacifica Radio. It's a oh, okay. na- na- nationwide uh, subscriber-funded yes. uh, radio station. Very left-wing. I mean, Certainly. really way, way too... It's not the left-wing, but they're not radical enough for me. But they're yeah. too indoctrinated into the left. You know? Yes, it, it's yes. Just, they're just towing the left line the way the fucking Republicans tow the Christian line. So. Yes, yeah. Anyway, no, I... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I listen to Democracy Now, which was put out on Pacifica, so I know exactly what There's you're saying. There's a lot of good stuff on there. That's where yeah. one of the places uh, that, well, Roy of Hollywood. Have you ever heard of Roy of Hollywood? I think I have, yeah. He, he ran his show from midnight to 6 in the morning, uh, Monday through Friday. For He still does. <laughs> He's been doing it for like 40 years. Yeah. And he's the guy that I got turned on to Terrence McKenna. KPFK was a big part of my life, yeah. Well, Roy of Hollywood. Mm. What a name, Roy of Hollywood. Mm. Yes. Well, you know what's funny? Let me tell you about Roy of Hollywood. (laughs) Uh, Roy of Hollywood sponsored a Terrence McKenna talk in L.A., the, the one of two times that I saw McKenna. And uh, it was at some church in L.A., and Roy was the the host of the sh- the thing, you know. <laughs> and so when I walked in, there were, you know, maybe 200 people there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not, you know, I mean, it, 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 the place was pretty full, but it was a small place. And, uh, you know, it was a bunch of weirdos, you know, who came to listen to Terrence McKenna because, yes. because Roy had been playing his, uh, you know, recordings. And uh, and so and if you've ever well you haven't but Roy of Hollywood's got a very um, what's it, an educated voice mm-hmm. you know I mean the guy sounds smart and uh, reasonable and mm-hmm. you know so as this is distinct from your voice can you try an impersonation uh, no I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what's interesting is is when I got there, I was sort of looking around through the audience and up on the stage to see if I could spot him, you know? Mm-hmm. You knew what he looked like. No, I didn't know what uh, he looked like. That's the thing. Is all I knew is, is from listening to him for like five years uh-huh. on the radio. I'd listened to him for a long time. I loved his show, man. He, he played audio tapes of the most fascinating people, you know? Uh-huh. And... Um, and sometimes some real clinkers, but, you know, for the most part, it was good stuff. And <laughs> anyway, so after I I'd sort of had this opinion of this philosopher king <laughs> kind of guy, you know. Uh-huh. And I knew he was young, though. I mean, I, knew, I didn't think he was old. Anyway, when, when, I got, when I got there, 
I finally figured out who it is. It was the last guy in the world that I would have thought. I'd seen him several times there and assumed that he was part of the Hells Angels security team. (laughs) (laughs) He was like six foot eight. Uh-huh. You know, about 400 pounds, well, 350 pounds maybe. Right. Beard down to his mid chest and, Gosh. you know, and hair all, you know. Just, I was in shock. Gosh. Well, it, I guess it just goes to show that a voice. It you, just goes to show you, you just can't tell. Yes, yes. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, when my father lived in L.A., he had a habit of inviting people around to the house because I guess he he went through a number of phases in his life. And over this period, he was in a kind of, I don't know, discovering aspects of religion, things like that. So when I lived with him, we would go to a mosque and a synagogue and a church and a Buddhist temple. And then we'd go to different mosques and different synagogues and different churches, different Buddhist temples. And uh, eventually these people would start showing up at his house. So he was friends with the Jews for Jesus people that he met down in Venice, and they would come over, and they were all ex-Vietnam vets who, um, you know, who who discovered Jesus but were Jews. And the uh, various uh, um, uh, Muslim folk that he had around, it was quite an eclectic group, but it gave me a sense that uh, yeah, L.A. <laughs> yeah, LA was the place where if you opened your home, you could basically have anyone you wanted turn up. But no, I have fond memories of that time. Fond memories of that time. I guess my sense is that the 1980s, the section of your life that I know very, I know kind of what you were doing in the in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and well, kind of what you were doing in the 90s. So, no, I was just thinking of, of, I was just thinking of bits, that, because for me, I've picked up these, these couple of things in the 1980s recently that have just made me realize that large portions of this time, as, as with you, were not uh, yeah. active memories. The important part of the 80s for me was when I, just got, I got a Macintosh dropped in my life in 1984. Yes, and uh, I never recovered from that. Yes, that that was a uh, from that moment on, my life was. Uh, I mean, literally within. Did I tell you how I got that computer? You told me yeah, that the, guy, um, yeah. the poetry. What was it? The yeah, it's something called the computer poet was. Yeah, the was computer talking, poet. Yeah. yeah, and after we had that discussion, I went and investigated all that stuff because I yeah. found it really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was a fellow, and I can't remember. You mentioned the fellow's name, but it wasn't the fellow who held all the patents and who set it up. Uh-huh. But I think um, the fellow that you may have mentioned may have been one of his offsides. But all this stuff is documented online. So if folks want to Google the computer poet, you actually, there's like the scroll and feather thing that was used in the iconography, and there's a lot of amazing resources online. Um, you the found the, com- particularly... the computer poet? Oh, yeah. oh amazing. Oh, I'll have so, to look it up. Send me a, put a URL in the, uh, in the chat for me, if yeah. you could. Yeah. So the, um, the poetry isn't particularly good. <laughs> no, but, uh... no, it's not. And neither was the image writer printer. That no. was what killed it. Because the thing jammed about every other page, and the people in the, re- you know, in the... In the stationery store, got tired of going over and taking the whole kiosk apart to unjam the damn printer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like a college student or a calligrapher because 
No, I mean, I guess there's, there's a mix of value just in the whole proposition because I guess I've used I've used Google in the past to find poetry to pass onto my wife in a bouquet of flowers, for example. And I think that's probably the modern one. But, yeah, it's all out there on the internet, folks. I, I can't find a URL specifically here, but no, I certainly... Right. Yeah, 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 I can find but, it. Yeah, Google it and you'll find exactly yeah. the same stuff. The yeah. thing that I found was there was a whole lot of intellectual property that they created around this thing. It doesn't... Um, I don't think it explicitly references a Mac, uh, um, but it's certainly all clearly a Mac from the uh, from the printed quality and also just the graphics and stuff. Very much kind of early Mac paint test. Well, this was stuff. no, this was before the Mac. I actually True. no, see, I had the, that thing in October mm-hmm. of '83. Mm-hmm. This was before the Mac was released, so this is mm-hmm. really early Mac. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. um, they had Mac. Well, they had. I don't know. My, my knowledge of the stuff isn't as good as it was about a decade ago. But they certainly had. Um, they certainly had like the software behind Mac Paint by 1983, and well, I think was, yeah, that was all within Lisa. No, no, they prototyped the first Mac was developed in the. I think around 1979-1980, it never obviously left the building. The Lisa, uh, I think, was 82 um, in terms of its release date. But you've well, got I'm to just saying the, the software that, that, that went it. into the Mac, the operating system and, and the software, uh, yeah, well, was, I think was the pretty much uh, developed on Lisa. Mm, no, I think the, the Lisa stuff came out in parallel. Um, my source here for folks interested is called Fire in the Valley, which I still think is the best... Um, book loosely um, used in the Pirates of Silicon Valley, which was a 1999 TNT film. But Fire in the Valley is fascinating because it gives it uh, far more kind of warts and all accounts. I also have a 1983 or 84 book of computer entrepreneurs, which is another amazing... You've got to really go back to sources that are in the <laughs> 80s, this yeah, kind of information. And, Otherwise, and you just... know how to do that stuff, too. So <laughs> that's why we yeah. have you around here, so you can straighten us out on this stuff. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, Aaron, so I think we've covered the 1980s in terms of my... Uh, so as, really, as that's, noted, that's it for the 80s, huh? KPPC and Macintosh. Well, you know, hmm. that may be enough. Really? I mean, that may be enough to justify the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, let's go on to the 90s. What the hell? No, I wasn't thinking necessarily of doing a day, no. uh, year, decade <laughs> by decade coverage of these things. It's just something that struck me. I was thinking about topics that we haven't yet discussed and things that have fallen uh, into place recently in my life. I mean, as I noted, we didn't record last week because I was in Reno, and the thing that struck me about my time in Reno was just the amount of conversations that I had to have. Just, um, for example, I, I traveled by cab on three occasions, yeah, and what, each of the did what? Traveled travel by taxi, cab, taxi oh, okay, cab. Yeah, okay. I've got to use the, the vernacular, whatever, whatever the correct terminology is yeah. for the various folks listening in as well as yourself. Um, and each of the cab drivers uh, had a, a very strong story to tell. Two of them were very much of the kind of on a libertarian tea party esque kind of ah, view, yes. um, which I, I don't know. I probably have more sympathies with these people than you do, Heron. Um, yep. I mean, I think the the general disgust with the government, I I fully support. My concern is that um, 
My problem with them is nationalism. Mm-hmm. Fuck America. And France and Australia and all of them. My allegiance is to the planet, is to Earth, mm. is to Homo sapiens mm. and uh, the species of the planet. The nation mm. states, the age of nation states is over. Mm. And it unfortunately it's probably going to take 30 to 50 years to realize <laughs> for that. really to be over yeah to, well for the well the, we, the problem is most of the humans uh still believe in nation states mm. that's the problem they so how do we fix the problem Aaron? their children well they're I don't, I don't think we have to worry about it. their children know they're full of shit and uh I don't think we have to worry about this, but it could be but a quite ugly parents, process. No, but I mean, let's let's take let's do first principles back. I mean, you knew you knew your parents' generation were full of shit. Yeah, I knew. I, when know. I was a small child. They were. Yeah, I mean, you are my parents' generation. I knew your generation was full of shit. Yeah, the generation. Well, to not, come, no, it's not but, about my generation. It's it's not about the parent. It's about my parents. Mm-hmm. Individual human beings experience mm-hmm. with it is not about a, ge- a generation thing. The vast majority of human beings are a bunch of unconscious language monkeys mm-hmm. who are programmed uh, by you know in their infancy by their parents and by the television and everything else to have a certain way of thinking about the world. Mm-hmm. And most humans uh, actually think that that's the way the world really is, not just their way of thinking about it. And that's what's got to change. Mm. So, how does that change? Well, I don't. I haven't figured that part out yet. That's what mm. I'm trying to figure. That's what Gendo is about. I think language is a big part of it. Like I say, I think eliminating the five stupidities of English uh, from children—not eliminating, but making children conscious of these kinds of problems—you mm. uh, w- w- know—would be really good. They wouldn't be any smarter, but they'd be a hell of a lot less stupid. And that so how does hurt. nationalism fit into the five stupidities? How does what? Nationalism fit into the five stupidities. Uh, well, you could talk about reification or, hmm. and two-valued logic. It's either us or them. Uh, very uh, true. Um, you could certainly uh, observe the word the at work. <laughs> you know, it's, This is the greatest nation in the history of the universe. God ordained it. You know? Yes. Um, Let's see what else is it, you know yeah so, so pretty okay. much covers so, all of them I think yeah yeah the greatest nation I I look my the only strength I could see with the Tea Party movement is uh, well um, I, I find I clutch at straws when I look for strengths but the strength that I like is the acknowledgement of the vast amount of corruption the problem is that the people that are funding them are also part of that corruption as well. But and just, saying what's and whining about what's wrong with the caterpillar isn't going to build a butterfly. Certainly, the certainly. system is corrupt. It's not the system is just not up to the realities uh, of, that we are facing in the future. We need to invent a new way to manage our behavior. Mm-hmm. So to deconstruct the nation state. You can do it passively, you can do it violently, or you can do it by... Epistemology. You're you're describing guerrilla epistemology. And the first piece of guerrilla epistemology is to understand... You see, the thing that has always concerned me with regards to the notion of the country that is the best is that it can't improve. 
The whole even, notion of even if it thinks it's like, oh, mediocre, it's still screwed. Nation states are ridiculous. I would well, I'd agree. I'd agree. We need there now. There need to be, like the where you and I live. In fact, we are both part of of, of, a, of a, the same ecological zone. We are people of the Colorado River. And that is a sort of natural political unit. The people who depend upon the water in the Colorado to exist mm. have a certain common interest. Mm. So I, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be able to get organized on meaningful levels. Mm. And that those levels can get organized. I mean, I think we need to be, we need a new way of thinking and, and a new system to manage our behavior on the planet. And I think that can all be done on Facebook, probably. Mm. Or something so, sort of like it. So when I was talking to these uh, these taxi drivers, the I'm always interested in finding shared points of discussion. And certainly the the um not destruction, but the fracturing of nation states was a common theme. I mean I think what you see in the um, kind of televised Tea Party is very much America, America, Uberalis. But if you scratch the anti-federalism uh, kind of commentary that comes through these movements, it, it always comes down to, you know, the, the removing the nation-state fundamentally. I think probably the distinction between what is televised, what is talked about, and what exists in the hearts and minds of these people is, is probably quite distinct. Hmm. But when, I mean, when you talk about uh, the the evils of nationalism, I think one of the methods to probably combat nationalism is to fracture the large nation states. Well, they're doing a pretty good job of that themselves. Exactly. Actually, so We don't have to worry about that. I think, yeah, QED. <laughs> I mean, I think everything follows from that. Yeah. But, um, you know, as, as, we become, as we become smaller and smaller nation states down to the, uh, the point where I guess we, we become kind of feudal counties... Um, once again, uh, I, I mean, is this is this one perception that we then become we then become world citizens in our fractured nation states, or what's the? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I have my vision of how it would, would work, sort of, but uh, how it's really going to go down is, you know, anybody's guess. You know, I mean, the, how it gets there. I, my time frame is thirty to fifty years. And the the real issue is uh, is just how ugly is it going to get before mm. before people wake up. Mm. And once we wake up, like I say, once people are capable of thinking, and I'm assuming that there is no alternative to this because I don't think there is any future the way we're going right now. Certainly. Well, I think yeah, entropy at least is... no kind of future that I'm interested in being around in. Certainly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, entropy is a very powerful thing, and you can certainly follow these kind of directions. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess the experiences that I had talking with people in Reno is that, um, yeah, you you paint a, an interesting picture, and I I do agree with you in large part in this kind of idea of the language monkey and the things that pe put people in in positions of comfort and reaffirming things. I don't necessarily know. I, I appreciate that language is a part of that. I don't necessarily know whether language is all of that. Oh, I, I, I would never say it's all of it. I'm just saying <laughs> it's a very important aspect that we can do something about. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
I guess the way I've always dealt with this, and this has only worked really on one-on-one conversations, particularly with people that have, and this is your whole notion that you can't, after someone's reached about the age of 16, you're not going to convince them of of anything different. I, I do agree with that in large part, but I do think that the seed of disbelief can be sown even oh, in the most... Oh, uh, yeah, there's, there's no... Yeah, absolutely. I'm just talking percentages. Yes. But that but that means that there is a percentage of people, and I think a growing percentage of people, who who will be able to change, who will see that they had been duped, <laughs> you know, and they will wake up from the trance of language. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, I'm expecting it. Mm. A, a sort of outbreak of uh, what some people call enlightenment. Mm. Mm. But again, I, the time frame it could it could be. I don't see that happening in the next twenty years. I no. would love to be wrong, but I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, what interests me is the perception that we could actually be, even with all the information that appears to be around us and appears to be becoming increasingly centralized and easy to access, we could actually be entering a new kind of dark ages. And I was listening to one of your recent conversations where you talked about. Uh, the children and the young uh, being the future in this aspect. But I think what you can learn from the Dark Ages or the notion of the Dark Ages is actually that we'll be certain that the elderly in large part, those that still hold on to certain aspects, one may argue what wisdom actually means in these contexts, but the the grit associated with... uh, a diversified uh, set of experiences. Are you talking about a world without an internet? I think, well, I don't, you see, I'm in two minds of this, and I've put this out there previously. I think the Wikipediaization of information is both, has, has both positive aspects and negative aspects. I think information... Yes, and you don't have to involve yourself in anything you consider to be negative. You just use the positive. Well, okay, let me describe what the positive and negative are because I think that might put this in better context. I think the positive is the ability to get access to information very rapidly at no cost. I think the negative is that the information you have access to has been simplified. It has been quite literally masticated by, you know, tens, if not hundreds of people. You understand that. I understand that. Yes. So is that a problem, though? I, I mean, think if, we, if you and I both understand that. Okay. So the example that we used about uh, Macintosh computers in the early 80s, the reason that I have the sense of Macintosh computers, aside from this reading, is that I've also sought out um, primary developers over that period and talked to them about their richness of experience. And I think what we what we could possibly lose here is the grit of uh, discourse of different stories, this notion as we've talked about... Why should we lose that? Because what will happen, rather than identifying, as we did in our last conversation, that there can be many ways for you to discover a a cat, and they all can be equally valid in some view, what happens is that you have a simplified... You see this... I mean, you see this with every aspect of history. But you don't have that simplified view, and neither do I. True, but there will come a time where someone will tell us that we are wrong and that our view will become the minority view, if it hasn't already. Well, all, we all, you and I already are a vast minority. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, I guess with regards How to... How many people do you think have ever had any of these ideas just slightly flit across their mind between commercials? 
Hmm. I don't think as many people are watching television currently as you do, Heron. Well, no, no, but I mean, even the ones who aren't watching television. These issues are fairly esoteric. I would imagine you're probably quite correct. <laughs> but of the people that are listening to us currently... There's like, like 30 people. <laughs> <laughs> well, there may, be, there may be currently, but who knows what will happen in the future, Heron. <laughs> well, whoever's there, I hope you're enjoying it. Very I good. Am. Yes. So I guess my concern really is that as information is refined and simplified, it loses the texture, uh, which even in, for example, written history, you can yeah, still but, pick you know, up. The thing is, you can still get all the texture you want. It's up to you. It's not up to the Internet. Uh, I mean, all the real data is there, too. But mm. most people are such stupid, unconscious language monkeys that instead of watching TV, they use the same mentality to approach the Internet. Mm. And that the Internet's not going to wake them up, unfortunately. It might, it might help. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> but the problem isn't the technology. The problem isn't Wikipedia. The problem is the idiots who are using it. It's, for what it is, it's an awesome tool. It's a place to, to get started. True, true. And it's, I, it's the best place in my whole universe I ever found to get started to find out something about something. Hmm. I think this is a different version of our TED conversation, Heron. Because whilst I agree with you in part, I think... And I thought about this, and I spent quite a bit of time thinking about because I'm sympathetic to your logic associated with if someone who has never had a conscious thought in their life has a conscious thought in their life due to a TED conference or did the TED talk, then it's a good thing. And what struck me is your story about how you uh, first uh, discovered this notion of language mapping onto your specific reality, which I only heard recently, the Manhattan Beach bikini um, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's exactly <laughs> the same thing that I associate with the TED conference. I mean, what, what you were saying here, and I... Well, I think it could happen just as well with the, at the liquor store as exactly. at a TED conference. <laughs> You're probably I'm, I'm right. more in favor of bikinis <laughs> than I am of TED you know, conferences. You, you may so. be right. No, but I still think it's a good thing. I, you know, mm. like I say, I don't go there. I, you know, there's no point in that unless they want to pay me. I'll be happy to go. But <laughs> other than that, yeah, uh, I don't know. I just, I just find it more interesting. What I, I, I'm for good stuff, and if, and as long as it's the overall good stuff is better. Well, and the bad stuff isn't there. The bad stuff is in the people that misuse this these tools. Mm. The problem isn't with this technology. The problem is with the goddamn language monkeys. That's the problem. Mm. Until they change, it doesn't make any difference what you do with the rest of the technology. You're going to have it run by a bunch of unconscious language monkeys that are literally living in a linguistically induced trance state. And that's not the kind of world I want to live in. So we return, I guess, to the, uh, the the perennial riff, which is how do we actually change things as as we sit here talking out to uh, two, maybe thirty people? How, what what is the idea oh, that question. actually changes things? Yeah, good question. Yeah, 
And my my sense is... Oh, you that, actually think you have an answer for this? Well, I think... We, Ooh, give it to me. Okay, I think it's an avalanche. I mean, my feeling is that this thing builds small, but basically, mm. progressively, if, if everyone who is listening to this finds someone out there and has this conversation with them or a version of this conversation or really any conversation which you, you have tackled in your back catalogue, then I think slowly but surely these thoughts are out there. The other thing is, yeah, and this is yeah. Terrence McKenna is fine, the others, which basically means if you have a conversation out there and you make a friend with people that are thinking likewise, then you have found the others and this works in a, a kind yes. of lazy way. So my feeling is that firstly, and the other thing is, and this is why I wanted to record these talks in a slightly separate uh, podcast to your original feed, is that I think people can come to this conversation and these ideas who don't necessarily have the same obsessive interests that we have. And one of the things that strikes me about this, um, um, I don't even know what would call it, drone is the term in terms of um, like bagpipes. So I don't want to use the term drone here because it has a negative linguistic no, I connotation. Love, but I love bagpipes. Very good. The drone so is important. Drone, this kind of constant drone associated with the with the language monkeys yeah. should, probably, should probably be meted by saying that I think there is probably hope for probably a greatest, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I have a sense that I have a greater sense of hope for the near future. Uh, but I have it through the idea that, firstly, I think things are changing very dramatically for a number of people currently. I think if you look just at the unemployment, the real unemployment statistics, the change associated with people having time where they're not working and where they're not maybe turning on televisions. I mean, the, the people I work with uh, in general through the kind of economic situation that seen with my wife working for since January last year, these kind of things, have started doing things like cancelling television and started doing things like reading more and started doing things like, you know, generally unplugging from uh, problematic mass media consumption. And I think that they're not alone. My feeling, and we've talked about this previously, is that there is nothing really on network or cable television currently which would entice people who even existed previously on a diet of of Mm. commercialized material. Uh, So I think these things are being switched off. What interests me (laughs) is the ability for what we're doing and through a variety of forums to be a replacement or at least instigate people in their thinking. And this this comes to a topic which I wasn't really considering bridging um, uh, today, but certainly obviously goes on in my own uh, work, and that is the notion of um, multimedia, ultimately embracing a variety of different media forms in terms of getting ideas out. And I mean, certainly, um, you know, writing uh, for me in terms of chapters and what have you um, has been a way of doing this to some extent. But in your own in your own terms, you've really hinged a lot of your future goals through what you're doing currently through podcasting, Heron. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see do you see there being additional... I mean, you talk a little bit about the potential of the future to go and give talks and these kind of things. Yeah. Do you think you'll create a 
uh, a linguistic manifesto through this period? Is there any chance of writing? Or... Uh, well, see, that's what I w- was talking. I, I think we might have talked about this offline the other night, about uh, the book I've been reading called uh, Writing Space. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it's r- really become clear. Actually, I had this insight a few, uh, maybe ten years ago, but the world is, wasn't quite as friendly to this then. Anyway, uh, it's real clear to me that I can never write for, for print. It's going to have to be hypertext, and um, and the more I look, the more I realize that, the more I, the more that frees me because I've actually got most of the work done already. Mm. There, I've got a, it's like there are thousands of very small frames that can be put together in a number of different orders, quite productively, and um, and I've got most of those frames already written. The problem was I could never figure out some way to put them together, and now I realize I can put them together. Any, you know, well, the, actually, the reader is going to put them together for me. <laughs> so in the mid-'90s, I knew people who developed, um, I don't know what the term is, maybe depth hypertext, this idea that you could create precursory text with links that basically enabled the reader to get the level of depth from the material that they wanted so it was kind of reader driven depth is this what you're talking about uh no well no well originally that was what i was thinking uh, maybe eight nine ten years ago um i was thinking about this but the state of the art was really what i'm thinking about now is, is probably something like flash or um not Flash was the other one, uh, Java, mm-hmm. that basically, uh, well, I don't know. I, say, I, don't, I don't really need to worry about that now because essentially you can do anything you want to. <laughs> That's the issue is you can present a reader with screens of information mm-hmm. and then link to other screens from there. How about Wiki? What about it? Well, I mean, is that what you're thinking about or is it is it more than just text is it audio oh no it's going to have audio that's it'll probably have access to the entire uh gendo ipod you know podcast archive mm. it'll have links to youtube mm. it'll, it'll have thousands hopefully it'll connect to thousands of other sites but it'll have its own core but from there, that's, that's the beauty of it, is it, this thing can, can go anywhere and still maintain its integrity as a system for teaching Gendo. Mm. Or, well, actually, that's only one of the ways. That's the beauty of it, is it could be, uh, if you go there as a Gendo student, then uh, you get the Gendo treatment. But if you go as a parent uh, trying to help their child learn to think more effectively, then they'll go- get that course through. So this isn't the idea as, I mean, I mean, let me map it onto something which I can probably describe to make it a little easier. So I write articles for websites occasionally. They publish them. They have links back to stuff that I've done. They have links to other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. And you end up with this set of links, kind of dynamic uh, conversations almost, different ideas but it's kind of spread over the internet, linking back to, for example, Biota or Noble Ape or something like that. Yeah. Is this the kind of idea? Yeah. Well, the thing is, it it has tentacles, but it's got to have a strong core unity for the experience of being on the Gendo site or in the Gendo software or Certainly. whatever. But uh, but from there, it's 
I would hope it would be become indistinguishable from the the entire web that it would have tentacles that go everywhere. So right. the Wikipedia is clearly one of the places. Certainly, certainly. Know. So in terms of time and frame, YouTube, yeah, and <laughs> obviously that that's another great <laughs> source. So in terms of time frame, do you think this is a, like a decade or a fifteen year? No, project? no, no. I think this is like um, because I've got, I've got most of it written. I mean, I I have large parts of it done. But is it in a hypertext form or is it? In well, a no, it's just no, no, no. There's a great deal of work. I'd, I'd say three to five years. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but but it's not an overwhelming amount. That's what's the beauty because before I couldn't get, I mean, because I, I needed to know what the overall structure was in order to finalize the bits and pieces. But I don't need to do that now. I don't mm. I don't know how it's going to all fit together, but I can finalize the bits and pieces and not con- worry about how it's all going to fit together. So you've described you've described two kind of core audience demographics: uh, students and parents. And oh, I mean, and, yeah, and uh, the kind of people who study Tai Chi, you know, okay. or, or spiritual seekers. Uh, okay, so these this is very good because one of the ways that you can create these kind of sites and extended sites is by thinking about these demographics and also. Finding where these demographics currently uh, coexist, uh, and then working ways to bring these demographics to your site. Now, obviously, Google is a, is a large part of that. But once you have these demographics in mind, I've certainly used even prior to Google Analytics tools of, of analyzing um, site statistics to get a sense of who these people are. A, a, a comical story associated with this is that I. I guess I mean, I've been doing this with Nova Lake specifically for about 15 years and Biota for about six or seven years. And uh, I had tuned the Nova Lake site particularly tightly for a particular kind of software nerd, basically open source, you know, ideologically driven, these kind of things. And when uh, the Nova Lake site was slash dotted, it was completely flooded by these people and it basically shut down the site. So you can do, you can tune things too greatly. But it's the idea of stickiness, and this is really what you're describing. When you get one of these people onto this environment, into this text, you want to keep them fascinated there for at least an hour. And this is something that you actually tune for in terms of how you lay these things out. For instance, I'm pretty sure the way the software is going to work, and I don't know just how yet, is that it actually is going to take over the screen. You aren't Mm. even going to have your menus. Mm. It's going to be like a game interface, mm. and uh, and and I'm probably going to start with at least thirty, maybe sixty seconds of the sound of uh, a small creek, mm. and a black screen, or maybe some uh, a video of some water, and mm. enforce that before they're allowed into the site. Mm. So that's very difficult to. That sounds good. But it's very difficult to actually do that. And I think what you'll to find do, is... Why would it be there, difficult to do well, that? Well, there are a number of sites that try that out. And I think the problem is that there are... So that may be a filtration. In oh, it's not of, for everything. No, it's just for like access to certain parts, like for the people on the spiritual path side, or people who are monks, or mm. are, are there for deep personal spiritual reasons. Mm. Uh, for people who are there uh, because they're scientists, no, they're not going to get that. <laughs> oh, maybe so they will. I don't know. We'll see. 
I guess this is my point. That um, there's a there have been. I mean, really, the internet from I guess '95 when it became hyper commercialized present. There have maybe been two or three ebbs and flows towards that kind of thinking, and then away from that kind of thinking. The hyper-flashization of the late 90s, I seem to recall, where everything was uh, that to an extreme, plus a wide variety of strange Mm. navigational concepts and these kind of things. We then moved into almost, well, I mean, Google then came out in the 2000s with very minimalist uh, text used in in particular ways. We went back into a kind of flash. Now with uh, mobile technology, a lot of this stuff, you've got to be very sensitive to how much text is actually being yeah. displayed. Yeah. I think realistically... We're getting conscious about the media now. The media. Well, increasingly I think we're getting a sense... I mean, what I find... I never look... For example, I mean, there are, this is something that you'll need to explore, but there are a wide variety of sites for, I guess, under 12-year-olds. Um, I work with... I think pretty well everyone I work with has children of that age group. Yeah. And they are very much uh, heavy flash oriented, uh-huh. but very much its own kind of aesthetic style. Lots of them are owned by the Disney Corporation, these kind of things. I mean, yeah. irrespective of what you think of these kind of corporations, they are remarkably well uh, well tuned to recruit people that can actually generate the n- next greatest. Ah. Uh, so Those might you, be the people we want to talk to. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe. Except they're probably already earning you know, six-figure sums working for Disney. <laughs> uh, well, no, but aside, can, I'll take them out and buy them a cup of coffee. Yeah, maybe they're disenchanted. <laughs> yeah, hang around the Disney campus. That's what you need to do. Um, crash, yeah, there are a wide variety of actually YouTube clips about how you crash those uh, large corporate offices and actually meet the people. That well, are actually, doing you know, things. I don't... I, the people are already there. I already know all sorts of people. The thing is, I don't really have anything at this point. When there is something, uh, I, th- I think I don't think that's going to be a problem getting people. Mm. The issue is uh, making sure that the site is uh, is something remarkable. Mm. It's a it's a very difficult thing, and what you tend to find is. That you can get to the point of almost obsessive tuning. I always let the statistics uh, rule it. This is the, uh, I have become Heron Stone. What you say with regards to podcasts, I say with regards to websites, Heron. I like the statistics tracking in terms of getting a sense of stickiness. And in particular, the idea that um, if you have people that are staying on the site, if, for example, 60% of the people stay on the site for more than an hour, then that is really the ultimate goal. Yeah. And there are a wide variety of ways that you can tune that. Yeah. But you need to get a sense of where your traffic is coming from. And all this stuff is is pretty well, you know, yeah. hammered out in a wide variety of areas. But I think the trick is it's one thing to say that. It's another thing actually to spend hours thinking about a site, tuning it, designing these aspects. Oh, I know. And it's, gonna it be, it's a huge job, and it's going to be <laughs> wonderful fun, though. You know, hmm. as someone who's done this for, I wouldn't necessarily use the term "wonderful fun." Well, it's a no, lot of but work. You're different than I am. I am obsessed. This is my mission in life. So you're saying I'm not obsessed with artificial life, Heron? Uh, well, maybe you're saying I've not devoted all my time to noble ape over the past. I mean, no. I think well, you, you may be missing some of the subtlety to what I'm saying. The nature of tuning websites is not 
always about the... Well, firstly, you need to remove yourself from yourself. So the things that you find wonderful, you find exciting, and you find uh, particularly fascinating will not always be. In fact, will probably but, never be. But what you don't understand thing. is that I'm not really, at this point, concerned about demographics. I, I know there's it's a... Described a, a, in the introduction demographics, Heron. Your, your whole introductory narrative about the kind of people that would find the site seem to indicate that you've already invested no, some I, time. No, I've, I know, I, I've thought about it, but I'm, what I'm saying is my sense about this is it's the, the people that I'm really interested in, in fact, are a fairly small percentage, probably less than 5%. Mm. And, um, but I, I don't think I'm going to have to convince them. I think, I think the people who are going to go for this are going to go for it, and I think if you're trying to convince somebody, if you have to deal with that on that level to convince them that this is actually something worth their while, then uh, it's not worth wasting your time with them. I guess there's, there's, there's a huge chasm between what you're describing in terms of convincing someone and just keeping someone who is sympathetic interested enough for them to... I don't know what your website will end up with. Is, is it them signing up for a course? No, is it's it not buying? a money-making deal. Per I'm not se. saying that, but it's but a way it, of getting information out there, and there needs to be some conclusion that's success for the different people that go to it. That's what I'm okay. saying. Is, is it does, it's not going to have a single identity. So, so the the child coming to the site, what is what is their ideal outcome? Um, I don't know what their ideal outcome is. My ideal outcome would be that they would learn about the five stupidities and actually apply them in their lives. Now, how we get them to do that is a matter uh, <laughs> under discussion. Okay. And the view here is that basically the five stupidities are the, the highest possible impact that the site can have. It's just if people take no, that... No, I'm not, God, I, God, I didn't say that. That's, that is one goal. Okay, so uh, list two other goals. Well, um, it would uh, help found... Uh, well, what, what would be the way to say this? It could be a precursor to a kind of global network of agents of evolution. Okay. So, from... What you've heard, do you think possibly Biota or Noble Ape may be part of that? I can't imagine that it wouldn't be part of it. Okay. But which one is a part of which is irrelevant. <laughs> See, I wouldn't okay. say it's a part of it. You are part of my life, uh, and you uh, that shit comes along with you, just like all of my shit comes true, along true. with me. I guess so. what I'm saying is that that, rather than being... Uh, Goal, perhaps goal is the wrong word here, but rather than that being an outcome, that's just a given, I would say. I think the... the yeah, yeah, how these two are going to work together, I'm not quite clear yet. Mm. But, uh, and that's up to us to invent. Mm. So, if you were to ask me that question, uh, with bio, for example, it would be to understand, firstly, that what you may have heard in the past about artificial life isn't the full story that there's a kind of richness and diversity. There's a very much currency as well as a historical understanding. And also that we're always looking for new or even old minds to get involved with the movement in some way and to influence its future direction. And I think just by saying that out loud, hmm. you get yeah. a keen sense of what you are doing 
And this stuff you don't yeah. need to put on the website, but it's something that you need to find. <coughs> and I'm, those, and I'm uh, absolutely aware of that. Uh, yeah. no, I, I, that's the old time management stuff. <laughs> you know I mean, that's, yeah. that's straight up stuff. Yeah, yeah, and somewhere along the line, that all needs to get handled. Like I say, mm. the, where I'm at right now is just sort of still stunned by the realization that I can actually get on with it. Mm. without knowing. I mean, again, my lack of having the overall structure has sort of paralyzed me, mm. you know, into finalizing the bits and pieces, and I realize now I don't need to do that right now. I can finalize the bits and pieces now mm. and begin to compile them and put them together and hook them up, and, 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 and in the process of that, I'm going to learn a lot. So... Returning curiously in some regard to time management, is this a day a week kind of affair in your current well, remember, thinking? I have OCD. This is every everything I do is all the time. Okay, but I don't have a life. This website like, isn't uh, current, huh? Well, but, but, no, but, 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 <coughs> removing ourselves from this kind of previous uh, back catalog discussion. Yeah. Uh, um, the thing I find, and I do this in particular with writing, is that if you don't have a certain degree of discipline, yeah, oh, okay. I know what you're you saying. Never actually get the stuff done. No, you're so, right. You're right. Uh, no, uh, I, I'm going to have to start spending at least two hours a day mm-hmm. uh, on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that too, because I actually hadn't articulated that to myself. But I do need to set aside some time. Yeah, for that. And, the thing about it is, and although you describe it in a very positive light, as someone who has done this for living memory, uh, a lot of the stuff that one does in these kind of pursuits isn't, well, none of it is particularly glamorous. And a lot of it is actually really quite mundane and not particularly exciting. It's boring as hell, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, um, so I guess the... The notion of the, uh, I don't necessarily want to say the ends justifying the means, but basically the, once the process is in place, uh, kind of iterate, 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 and then look back and wonder occasionally is really, I guess, the advice that I would give. But you really, you, I mean, you have to start. I think this is well, the... Well, yeah, that's it. I, I really don't know. You know, I mean, I could die tomorrow. So, I mean, I don't really know. What's going to happen? It's just that I realize now that I can get on with it, mm. you know, mm. and 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 I'm excited about the potential for. Uh, I mean, because I've thought of what I was doing before is at least four or five different books, mm-hmm. and and I realize that not a one of them really belongs on paper. Mm. You know, they all belong in the matrix. Mm. And uh, and now I can put them all together in one thing, and still they can each have an identity, uh, and yet the parts of those that go with parts of others can be related directly without, and all of that's lost in a book. Mm. But look, I mean, I I've gone through this in my own work, and I can identify what exists on a CD, what exists in MP3, what exists in a book, what exists online, and what exists in software. And I think they're all unique, they're all distinct, and they all have value. And some of those things, in fact, the majority of those things, I give away for nothing. Uh, But there are some of those things which still have intrinsic value on printed paper. And I think the... That's because of the capitalist economic system we live in. No, it's because... That's not, I think, value uh, in and of itself. Well, it's because the 
kind of things that still, and although this may change in the next decade, but the kind of interactions that people have, and this has changed with CDs quite notably, but the kind of interactions that people have with the various medias, um, software I include in that, are still relatively distinct. The vision of the mid-90s in terms of this notion of multimedia, where it would all be some amorphous blob that would be run on a computer or run on a device, still really hasn't come to fruition. And I think there are... We had a lot of dumb ideas back then. True. There are meaningful (laughs) distinctions between these things. So I still... And this is something I was thinking about. I mean, I, I am very much a bibliophile, very much of that mindset, uh, because the experiences that I have with books are some of my fondest experiences. Well, you know, I'm amazed to say that I have two friends who have iPads who swear they'll never read a book on paper again after Mm. after reading on an iPad. Mm. Now, I haven't done that. I find that difficult to believe and think sometimes I have bad taste in friends. <laughs> you know, so yeah. but but nevertheless I can see that coming, I think. The thing that I like about an iPad and I've had you know, I can count on two fingers the interactions I've had with an iPad. The thing I don't like about iPads, and let's say it out loud, they're unbelievably expensive for what they are. And they are something which is very much part of an elitist cultural element in this country, which means that having an iPad is as much about saying that you have an iPad as it is about an actual technology. As usual, Tom, you're always picking on the straw men. It's the people. Don't blame it on the iPad. It's not what you don't um, like about the iPad. It's what you don't like about humans. Well... It has nothing to do with the iPad. What you're... What you're arguing about is the asshole humans who have fetishized it and turned, you know, if you just, it is just what it is. That's all it is, and it's cool. I think of the technology very much as humans, Heron, because I've known the humans that have made the technology in the past. So I think it's, uh, they're indistinguishable intellectually as far as I'm concerned. Um, and certainly haven't gone into Apple recently. I really feel that. Uh, so my critique here is very much with regards to the humans that make the iPad too. That make that, the iPad, or the ones who are buying it and walking around showing off with it. Both ends of the spectrum. Although I think the poor folk in China that are currently rioting and trying to get improved working conditions, I have no truck with. Uh, but everyone else in the equation, I have some truck with, and this includes the company that continues to distribute my software. Uh, and ironically also their processor manufacturer that is constantly not only supporting uh, aspects of the iPad development but also looking for the next latest iPad. I think it's a technology that's going to become a lot cheaper. When it becomes a lot cheaper, then it will have the potential to change. (laughs) The thing I like about the interface is that it's very similar to, and these were... um, multi-thousand dollar pieces of equipment. In the late 90s, when I used to travel around VR labs and go into virtual reality hardware companies, they would have these flat panes, very much like iPads. However, they were connected to long arms that you could rotate and move and you could actually look into an environment. The modern-day iPad still, unfortunately, doesn't quite have the graphics processors required to uh, do those kind of immersive environments. But when you can hold an iPad and and swim through uh, 
aqueous environments very yeah, soon. Yeah. I think yeah. it's such a Less than five years. Yeah. yeah. In, yeah. I years. think it's moving in the right direction. Yeah. The experience that I have, the first thing that irritates me about all this technology, and I find this with laptops as well, because I do use laptops. I do use laptops uh, in bed occasionally. Is that well, that's I, what the iPad is for, see. The iPad certainly. is the ideal bed stand computer. Yeah. Except they get hot. They're radiative. Yeah, they're, that's the first generation. It's, you know, five years from now. Give it a couple Laptop years. computers have gone through ebbs and flows, but the modern ones still, and I'm frustrated by this because Intel, in theory, has been using my technology to actually make cooler processors. They still, unfortunately, get hot. large part of that is because they put out light, and thankfully that also saps their power. Um, but I think that there are still functional problems that I have with regards to these technologies, and this is from someone who, in theory, should be embracing these things uh, wholeheartedly. The thing I like about books is that there are a wide variety of books that will never be made into electronic books, and those books and holding on to those books and understanding and reading Why would they never be converted them. into electronics? The, the, there's an order of scale issue. And this comes from talking to people who work at the Internet Archive and, to a lesser extent, people who've had connections with the Google... What about um, people with OCD? <laughs> or OCR. OCR, more importantly. They're even better, right? People with OCR, I think. OCR well, and that's the, the combo. That's the combo yeah, we're that's looking what you for. Need. OCD, OCR. <laughs> and, yeah, and no scruples about copyright and abilities books online yeah. without a copyright. Okay, yes, there are a wide variety of things um, which could make electronic books uh, considerably better. Uh, I guess there's probably going to become a stage... The big machines that do it at the Internet Archive, or used to do uh, the book scanning, are absolutely huge. The human literally kind of crouches inside them and moves glass things almost like yeah. they're conducting an orchestra. Yeah. And um, <laughs> they are still uh, laboriously slow. Oh, yeah. It's going to uh, be a long time. So, yeah, I guess my hope is a lot of good books are electronically available. Certainly everything by Darwin is online, including his... Um, romantic poetry and a wide variety of other things which really paint Darwin more as a humorist than a scientist. Um, so, I mean, I think there are things out there which are very good in their electronic form. But, um, well, but that doesn't mean we have to get rid of the paper ones. No, I, 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 yeah, I, I, guess, I guess my concern with regards to all these things is firstly... Uh, well, I, I just I wonder what the future is going to look like. I'm not afraid... <laughs> But I wonder what it's going to look like. Well, we don't know. That's our job. That's the whole point. The future is mm. going to look like whatever the hell we create. It has. Yes, it has. that's what it's going to look like. It's not the question. You're asking the wrong question. The question is, what am I doing? And how am I creating the future? Because that's exactly what we're doing. Yes. Well, certainly by recording hundreds of hours of audio, <coughs> we are creating we're a doing brief... something. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what, but... And certainly, in answer to your previous question, I think in terms of uh, the inevitability of, of being hit by a bus or something like that, that, you know, there will be certain aspects of my existence that persist well after I'm long gone. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it'll say. I guess I've not had a sense of... Um, I mean, I've certainly known people that have passed away that had a really strong impact on my life, and I've had people that have passed away that have left indelible things that, you know, one can talk about. This is actually a perfect venue to the final topic discussion that I wanted to talk about, which is the Second World War. Oh, um, oh, yeah. So I find myself 
And this is something that I guess I do late in the evening, reading Second World War histories now to the point where I think it's an addiction. And it comes from early... I may have talked about this in the past, but um, where I grew up in Australia, there was a... um, well, it's the, the nation's capital, but there was a war museum called the War Memorial, the Australian War Memorial, that I would go to probably in the order of at least once a month uh, with my father, typically. Although in my late teens, I would go there just by myself. And the reason that we would go there so frequently was because it was cool. It was I don't think it was air-conditioned, but it was just a large stone structure and through the heat of the summer in particular, it was really cool. And we would walk around, and the smell of uh, gun oil and military uniforms and uh, books and fighter aircraft and all these kind of things. <laughs> it's good just... that you said something about the smells. You know, because, you know, just that really brings it to life. Mm. You know? Mm. I mean, in my, as I was listening to you, I mean, I could almost uh, get into that hangar. <laughs> yes. Know? Yeah. yeah. And funnily enough, we went to, for I guess my 24th or maybe 25th birthday, my wife took me to a military, uh, um, what would you call it, a, a docking yard for military boats in um, Liverpool. And we went around a submarine and various old. Uh, World War Two and kind of Falklands era, era um, boats in this yard, and they had a U-boat on the horizon, which was just amazingly striking because it was so large. And they sold um, they sold military motor oil in little vials, like you would see expensive perfume, <laughs> so you could take the smell home with you. And uh, we didn't do it; we should have done it. But I mean, I think really? that. That is the yeah. You so, open that up every once in a while and take a, whiff. a little whiff. Yeah, yeah. Have a little whiff. But no, it's 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 very much the smell and the emotion. And it struck me when I went back there. In fact, I put a couple of clips on YouTube uh, of my. It really was like a family member. I I have not. I was not even really emotionally overcome by seeing my brothers again. One of whom I hadn't seen for at least nine years. But to wander around the War Memorial again uh, moved me <laughs> really, to tears. Yeah, yeah. It was really an emotional experience. Well, I guess it hasn't changed, right? Oh, it's completely changed. Oh, no, this is the horrible thing. Oh. They basically oh, that's too bad. Just, I, the way was, you were talking about it, I was thinking... Oh, the First World War section is almost exactly the same, and that's what I took a majority of the footage of. You can see on YouTube. Everything else has changed, and it has really changed for the worst. Just as I was leaving Australia, they started doing horrible renovations which removed a lot of it used to be very dense amounts of information and um full-scale uh busts uh, um with with faces in military uniform uh stuffed horses uh basically everything just packed into uh the various uh, uh theaters of war a very rich environment where you were constantly looking at full-sized Germans, you know, wearing SS uniform, and next to them would be, you know, Turks and Russians and a wide variety of these things. Were Aussies fighting in Europe? Yes. Oh, yes, in the First and the Second World War, yeah. And obviously um, Korea and Vietnam, and now they have a section for um, 
the Middle East, um, uh, well, for for Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, the thing that really struck me about this from a very early stage was not only that, um, I, I guess it's really even perverse to say out loud, but this was so calming to me. Um, in a really quite strange and surreal way, no, I, and you know, I can I can get with that somehow. <laughs> I mean, I, I have uh, we have the Museum of Science and Industry in L.A. Have you ever been there? I think I have. Yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, as a young guy, I used to go there a lot, and mm. uh, and I loved that place. <laughs> you know, because being in that space was. Yeah. Uh, the statistics for the Second World War are what, eight to twelve million people killed, something like that. How many? If you don't include the Soviet Union, is it like, is it, it's, it's between like sixteen to twenty million people were killed in the Second World War, yeah, weren't they? I, I have no idea. I've never really something like that. A lot. And I know that the First World War was a fraction of that. So this is the element of perversion here, um, and I find this really striking. Particularly, how old were you when you started going there? Um, three, four. Ah, and through how? What I went back up until I mean through the whole time I was in Canberra. Okay, well, see, yeah, see, that explains it right there. I mean, you your <laughs> attachment is way uh, prior to linguistics and conceptualizing the world. It, mm. it, it's on an you know it's on a on a level that that's not even touched by that. But here's the interesting thing. So just as I was leaving, and certainly when I went back, which is this decade between those two points, they simplified all the other military conflicts aside from the First World War. So literally they had a cue card explaining the Holocaust now. <laughs> and the anchor doesn't even really describe it. I mean, really <laughs> disgust. And, I mean, my parents um, protested. What about the bomb on Japan? Uh, I don't even, I don't even think they accurately, this is the thing, what happened was that they completely sterilized everything. So, for example, the Vietnam section, which had, had come out through my uh, early teens, actually, that was one that they took longer to actually produce. Then, when I went back, they had now devoted an entire wall, they had in the past a little black and white television set that displayed um, some of the footage that was coming back to the people at home and a small description associated with uh, Vietnam uh, protests. Now, my parents were heavily involved in the anti-war movement. That's how they met. Um, it's a large part of my you know, early childhood. And I'm in every possible way, in some fashion, affiliated with that concept. However, I think that <laughs> you when were you hanging about, out at the war memorial. Well, I think when you talk about the Vietnam War, although it could be argued quite probably justifiably that the the folks at home, uh, aside from the fast kind of military wave that concluded it, but the folks at home also had some aspect to the conclusion of it. However, my feeling is that in a war memorial, which is more to describe, and there's nothing positive about any of these things. I mean, this is what really strikes me about my childhood, is that everything that I know about these conflicts, very intimately about these conflicts, make me really strongly pacifistic. Yeah. But also, yeah. 
that only a society that has no concept of these things can do things that are being done currently. The whole notion that you, if you don't have this understanding of history, I mean, the, the First World War, in terms of its um, homage to the battles of the 19th century, and, the, and then the Second World War, uh, the war to end all wars. I mean, that was what the First World War yeah, was. Right. The consciousness of the people was supposed to be very much against that, and yet, mysteriously, that was warped into the Second World War. And you'd, these things, if they're not understood in a historical context, and particularly how the prior wars led into the... and so on, it just strikes me that these, the only way that these things are going to be remembered is if the brutal... I don't want to even use the term richness, but the full force of these things is remembered. So my frustration with what happened at the war memorial was that if you pacify war to the point where you make it into a politically correct thing, you're not... Get ready, man. <laughs> it's the antithesis of the actual direction that you're trying to achieve. But so I It's break... them language monkeys. I keep telling you. <laughs> There's you're, no you're, hope. You're right on this front, Heron. You're right on this front. So I wrote a letter, and then I thought, no, I'm not even going to send it. What, what I have is a, a, a memory myself. What I have is the ability to talk, to put these ideas out there, and the people that... If this is a movement... Because there are a lot of things that go on in Australia that I... I have no connection with, and I'm just going to allow this to be something that I I can't have an emotional investment with. What I do have an emotional investment with is the literally, you know, probably, what, two decades worth of time uh, in little monthly increments that I spent at this place, and the sense of primarily uh, 20th century conflicts, but a really intimate sense of the total futility of humanity in these conflicts, but also the fact that the if you don't understand this, if you don't smell it, if you don't see it, and if obviously this... Yeah, if, I saw the movie. I yeah. saw it on YouTube. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, you know... Yeah, oh, yeah, I, World War II. I saw that one. Yeah. I guess... The thing that strikes me about it is because I read so much, I'm going through a very heavy phase currently, uh, and it, it then completely permeates my dreams. I've had uh, phenomenally lucid dreams. This also comes through my childhood as well. I mean, truth be told, my father's father uh, and my father's mother uh, both uh, fought in the Second World War. Uh, and it certainly had a substantial impact. My father was born in 1946. Were you born in 46 or 47? 46. 46. So it had a huge impact on my father's childhood uh, and a huge fear of Germany and a huge fear of uh, a wide variety of factors that were really very much... I mean, the experiences I had as an early child walking around this museum, my father had uh, through his family. So... I really did get a far more sterilized version of this. But, however, my father, perhaps in his wisdom, understood that walking around a museum and getting a sense of it through that would be particularly striking. Um, but I now find myself kind of returning to this as very much a cyclical pattern. I go for maybe three or four months where I don't read any war history. I tried to read into the First World War and read a lot in that area probably about a year ago. Now I'm back in my Second World War reading, and I find it quite striking because 
it really does enter my dream space, and I have these crazy kind of hyper dreams now, which are combinations of my current life mapped into the Second World War, <laughs> which are really very perverse. I, I'm reading a lot about mechanized infantry currently, which really... Maybe just, you should change your reading habits. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe do you like these dreams? I think they're very they're very insightful. Yeah. The ones that I've had with regards to the First World War in particular, the size of the 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 thing that struck me about the experience as a boy and reading, and also experiences like going to Germany uh, and spending a long period of time in Germany, is that the it is part. It's almost the collective unconscious. There is an element there of humanity, which I think I am getting some insight into through these experiences, and it's a part of humanity where I am. And this is my wife points out that I react very quickly in times of danger, um, but it's not something that exists in my day to day life. I am, you know, very much a. Um, a middle-class monkey <laughs> in, all, in almost all aspects of my life. Um, and I think this thing is something which I guess I'm just playing through almost perhaps potentially for, you know, a future child or something to get some understanding of. It's also um, the experiences that I had with my father as a child, the positive ones really did relate to this very heavily. We've talked a lot about, um, uh, intellectual elitism and all that kind of stuff, and I experienced that as well with my father. I mean, in terms of you know, he went and talked to union leaders and going to conferences with him and these kind of experiences of constant academic tea parties and dinners and these kind of things. Um, but the things that really resonated with me from because they were nothing like any of these other experiences were um, the experiences I had walking around the War Memorial and. Doing things like, you know, making plastic models and painting toy soldiers and all the things that I have kind of continued on. Um, yeah, in, I was in, heavy in, into that, making yeah. models as a mm. kid. I liked that a lot. Airplanes and mm. tanks and <laughs> all sorts of things. That was fun. <laughs> yes. I guess there was something about actually finishing it, but also getting a sense of the skills that were needed in order to create these things. And I guess the adventure of actually building the things, too. Um, but there is a, there, I think there is a kind of collective unconscious associated with this, which allows me to continue to go through it. And um, See, I can't imagine why anybody, except a World War II scholar who is getting paid by a university to be a mm. World War II scholar, w would read stuff about world war Two. i met a guy uh in starbucks yes yesterday yeah yesterday who is writing a book about a guy who i don't remember his first name his last name was lyons who was a uh a 14 year old boy who lived in texas who was kidnapped by comanches and uh and then like 20 years later left and came back mm. and uh there's not much. Anyways, this guy found out about him. He's writing a book about him. Mm -hmm. And he had about six books with him doing research on the Texas Rangers and uh -huh. this and that and the other. And I was thinking, you know, that's cool. You know, there's a guy with OCD mm. you know, who's who's got this thing he's doing.
Mm. And I can appreciate that if you've got a thing for World War Two. Do you mm. is that a thing that you have? <laughs> like he has a thing. <laughs> I don't know. It, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not represented by a full shelf in my library, but I do have a number of books on World War Two. Is and it I just come World back... War Two is not war in general. I mean, yeah, um, a lot of I have war a couple books. of books on the First World War, and I have a couple of books on Vietnam. You have Sun um, Tzu. I don't know. I'm not. The thing that interests me is just that this is a recurring. And I have stuff on Rome. Look, look. Honestly, I have probably more military texts than one would have if one wasn't, in some regard, interested. Well, I don't in have it. any. See, this is the point. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, so that's this... good because we've all got our little peculiarities <laughs> of things we're in- interested in. I guess so. I guess so. But um, yeah, I think there's some. There's some element of, um, of the, the way it links up with Noble Ape and the way that I've been able to justify it with Noble Ape is that there, the notion of tactics, strategy, and survival are not... Um, it's not like a native emotion in terms of the way it's done through militaries. It is very much an elite identity. And the idea of it in an intellectual sense is very different... Uh, than, you know, hunter-gatherer societies. It's very much a thing which is a refined uh, culture in and of itself. And the logic that is associated with military tactics in particular is something which can be studied and isn't studied. I mean, this is the thing that frustrates... you classical military uh, prior no, to... I think, no, I think, no. The whole, there's, an abs- there's a meta concept which exists at any age, be it Roman... Uh, medieval, modern, what have you, and nuclear and, weapons. Uh, that is very much that's 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 even more primary. That's like chess strategy. That's even more primary than uh, than you know men in tanks God, on a battlefield. Do you think we're going to survive? <laughs> uh, well, this is the thing that if you can create the if you can describe these intelligences, then you can understand these intelligences better. So if you are working against these intelligences to say that they have no validity as they continue to kill tens if not hundreds of thousands of people every year, then you ignore the fact that this is something which actually needs to be intellectually identified. So if you describe, for example, the effects of war... I mean, there's there's nothing in uh, biology, um, be it... um, anthropology or anything smaller that actually describes for example in the uh, in the dark ages there were and leading into probably the 15th 16th 17th century there was a whole class of people that were missing limbs uh, because they had been caught up in feudal conflicts and they hadn't been killed but they had lost their limbs so what does feudal <coughs> conflict actually do to genetics what does contemporary what does contemporary militarism do to genetics? Ah, I mean, where is the scholarship in this? Yeah, right. So and how I much think... does genetics have to do with the future anyway? See, according to Kurzweil, uh, we are transcending biology, period. Screw genetics. Well, that's exactly my point. So yeah. what transcends biology, this whole, this whole meta-consciousness thing, which is exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. that we need to have some understanding of that. So whilst... I understand that this is an obsession of mine, perhaps. I also see that there is n- n- 
no scholarship being done in the social sphere associated with yeah. this, and there needs to be scholarship done. Yeah. Now, my own interest with regards to simulation is particularly esoteric in this field, but I think there's still meaningful scholarship that needs to be done there. Yeah. And I think it's not just apportioning the fact that this is perverse and not to be talked about, because, well, ultimately... Well, I mean, the challenge is to find some way to make it useful. Hmm. Well, I think there are, there's certainly a lot of potential there. It's just to be able to yeah. categorize it and frame it. So I guess this is really the roundabout discussion, which explains my own eclectic perversion associated with the Second World War and some kind of romantic <laughs> intellectual justification. <laughs> yeah. Can you say that again? <laughs> so <laughs> I could say in triplicate. Okay. But I'm, I think that pretty well concludes. There was a, Oh, I, I liked your question quote, screw followers um, in the past week. I thought that was uh, worthy of a T-shirt, actually. <laughs> what, did it, what did I say? You said screw followers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck them. <laughs> no, it should be fuck follow. No, no. Yeah, with followers. Yeah, it doesn't work quite as well, though. No, it doesn't. Yeah, no, no, screw them is... Yeah. Actually, yeah. it probably should be, like, followers, screw them. Who needs them? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was the. Uh, yeah, that was the. Uh, Who was I talking to? Uh, you've had a wide variety of interesting new folk in uh, in the past couple of weeks. I think. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if an you... archive thing. I think. No, one of... it's one of the. He, he had a two-barrel name. I'm trying to think. He was a, a new British fellow you were talking to, who was the um, musician who does college. Oh yeah, Stuff? Sean's uh, Sean yeah. South. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That was so fun. That was he'll nice. be recurring. Uh, yeah. yeah, he was fun. Yeah, person. I hope so. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with him. Yeah, I think the there's a certain amount of traumatic stress associated with some of the folk that you've spoken to previously. Maybe just the long pauses, um, which obviously we don't. Uh, or I, you know, I, I like to fill dead air as much as possible. Not always with intellectual banter, but still. And I think I find personally listening to the long pauses, I don't know, it just adds a certain element of tension, which is probably... <laughs> what, I mean, be, when, I, when they're sort of expecting me to say something and I don't? And no, I don't know. Them. Or you're waiting for them to talk, or they're waiting for you to talk. I don't know yeah. what it would sound like if the pauses were removed in that context, but it just... yeah. It gives me a sense of... I'm, well, sometimes sure. when, I can, when I can see long pause, like if somebody got up and went to the John, you know, and was gone yes. for eight minutes, I usually edit things like that out. But, yeah. uh, but you know, yeah, if, if there's just nobody talking, you know, and, and they're sort of waiting for me to do something, I'll often just sit there and listen to see what happens. Certainly. It's Certainly. great fun. So in the next couple of weeks, I hope to start, I've been talking about this for what, two months now, but I hope to start actually putting new people in. And what I'm going to do is uh, record them as we're recording here. Do an and introduction. you're recording on your end, right? I'll record on my end, and okay. then uh, you can listen to the audio. We can work out how to actually proceed, because certainly the shortlist has grown to maybe a dozen folk now, and it'll be kind of flight traffic control actually bringing them into the conversation. Um, mainly on my part because I get kind of overwhelmed with audio and writing and a wide variety of things. Uh, but I do want to start introducing these people into the conversation. Uh, and who are these people that were that you're considering? So the first fellow is a 
Uh, well, I don't know. He's he's probably going to be listening to this as a demonstration of what this thing is. So now you've really put me on the spot. Okay, so let me let me describe the phenomenon. You can always edit this out. Oh, I'm going to leave it in. Let me leave it in for the sake. I've said a lot of really quite political and testy things already in our conversations <laughs> with you that no one actually listens. So um, let me let me describe it this way. This is a fellow who. Um, I guess left formal education in his mid-teens and then gained early success through a phenomena of the kind of late 90s, which evolved out of skateboarding DVDs, um, but were very much part of what I would assume to be uh, Monty Python-esque skit comedies with cartoons put in between. So he did this in DVD form until it was picked up by MTV, uh, and he was on MTV for about, I don't know, six, maybe eight years, uh, and continues to be like constantly replayed on MTV, and now seems to do a lot more independent stuff, but is so really... He pro- he's producing video, is that what you... No, well, it's kind of, it's a diff because it was all personality-based too, so he was yeah. one of these... So it's him uh, too. It's his, well, except yeah. he's kind of, he's, a, he's from a group that I've been, I, well, I started working with one of the fellows maybe five or six years ago, and he's the last of the group that I've had some contact with, but I actually think probably the most interesting of the group, primarily because a lot of his stuff is very... Um, well, it's almost a homage to Monty Python, but really more... I don't particularly like Monty Python. And well, I think shame on a, you. You shouldn't have said that. I, I think <laughs> like, How could you say that? No, you blasphemer. I don't particularly like Frank Zappa either, unfortunately. Oh, but anyway. my goodness. All right. Uh, you know, we're going to have to reconsider <laughs> this friendship. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I felt that way when you talked about Frank Zappa. But anyway, um, oh. so... This fellow is uh, is quite an interesting, quite listen, complicated. I can, wait, listen, I can uh, attest to the fact that I, I understand that there's a lot of reasons not to be all that impressed with Frank Zappa. It's a it's a special thing for some people. I understand yeah. that, and it's it's a region, it's a time, it's a place. It's a, yeah, it was a whole thing that was going on back then, and um, yeah. So yeah. I can acknowledge that. And also, you know... Well, I, I won't hold... I am going to hold uh, Monty Python against you, though. <laughs> the, yeah, I don't know. The thing about Monty Python is it did fuel some interesting children. I do like some of the Python's work. I don't like all of their work together. I do appreciate it as an intellectual thing, very much like Tolkien. Um, I'm not... I don't particularly like Tolkien, but I do understand that his work yeah, as an see, intellectual... I've never even read Tolkien. Okay. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. So yeah, no, okay. Got time for that nonsense. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's really an expose of kind of some kind of collective unconscious as well. But anyway, um, I introduced you briefly in chat to um, my friend Tracy, who I worked with. Uh, I don't know, maybe three, four years yeah. ago, and she's a fascinating woman as well. She also has um, white. Well, she, she was part of a formal OCD project. Um, so she's very public in her ICT, but she has a lot of interesting uh, components to her personality, including the fact that she um, she uh, has this kind of external persona thing. She dresses up, she does uh, cartoon character voices, 
Uh, she's quite well read and she has a very interesting, she's based in LA as well. Um, she has, um, a very interesting kind of family history too. And I think she would be an interesting person to, to talk to, um, uh, because uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for what she's done. Um, and, and where she's coming from. And yeah, there are, there are a dozen other people, like I say, I mean, I've got people in the artificial life community and, uh, I think there are other psychology folk and other people I know. <laughs> but this fellow, um, uh, Brandon, I would like to get, uh, involved in a relatively near time frame just because I actually have a lot of interesting questions for him. I think he's someone whose work I have a great degree of respect for. And also understand it in a layered context. Uh, the thing that I'm missing is this: he um, he's from uh, Pennsylvania, and a lot of his early work was deconstructing 19th century Pennsylvanian history in a kind of comedic bent, which seems very strange to mix that with skateboarding videos. Um, so he really is um, kind of eclectic, eccentric character who I think will fit in very well with the format that we've generated so far. And I should also point out that, that those suckers at iTunes have formally registered these conversations, as I will present them in the a feed, as the Stone Ape podcast, uh, which is a unique conjunction three words stone ape podcast um which is what i'll be releasing these in as a feed on the internet archive and a wide variety of other locations to kind of uh, catalog our discussions and future discussions with people that will get involved um and i'm slowly because i have to write show notes for each of these things i think i've got maybe two or three we're up to number nine or number ten now I put most of them in a feed with detailed show notes. Uh, I've still got a couple of the early ones to go through, do a final edit and release with show notes, but it'll all come together. The website for folks interested is noble slash stone. Um, I will probably register another site and make it more elegant and all that kind of stuff, but for the time being, this has been the kind of collection. And, of course, you'll continue to release these conversations in your own feed, Heron, um, and... When we have other people involved, we'll work out whether I'm recording them or you're recording them or how they're actually released. Well, I think uh, anyone can record them who's interested in recording them. Yep, that's the way I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. That's the way I'm feeling. Yeah. So. so I'm hoping you're recording. I Actually, there were some audio problems a couple times uh, this evening. Uh, oh, I, I I'm meant... recording on my end. Oh. I'm, I, I'm re- relying on you recording on these. So, okay. Yo, you're not uh, recording, you said? I'm not recording. Okay, uh, you should be recording. <laughs> okay. No, you should, the... you should be recording as a matter of fact. Yeah, uh, is, well, is... I'm not currently, and I haven't been because I have you, been. But Are you on a Mac or Windows machine? I'm, I'm going to. I haven't yet purchased the software that you recommended. I'm yeah. on uh, because it's so, great software. It's so simple. It's just yeah, a, I, it's I, I see that. I'm, I'm going to purchase it. But, uh, yeah, in any case... In terms of this evening, did you have any questions, any topics, any things that you wanted in to cover? In terms of what? In, well, in terms of this evening, as we oh, kind of... this is, evening. Is this oh, yeah, I missed that because, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, not anymore. <laughs> if I did, it's gone now. <laughs> okay. Well, what I do here, and as I described previously, is I have a sheet of paper that I write topics on. Yeah. And I just wander through my days with it. And as yeah, I think, and if something comes up, something comes up. Cool. No, I, I, listen, I've, uh, this is an interesting experience for me to, um, <laughs> it's a little bit like I'm your side man. <laughs> and now we're going to, we're going to have our first guest come in. <laughs> come yes. in. 
Yeah. <laughs> evolution. It's an evolution. An evolution of digressions, that's what it is. <laughs> well, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know. Yep. Um, I'm fascinated. I, I'm still getting used to the idea that this really, in a sense, is your show. Because you're the, you've claimed it. <laughs> you know, no, I'm quite serious about that. Yes. The, the, the stuff I do uh, is different than this completely, Certainly. you know, yeah. well, I mean, and, and I'm a little uncomfortable with this still when I get the idea that this is actually a show and that you're actually over there thinking about what this sounds like to somebody else because really I don't give a shit. Yeah, you say that. You say that. Well, no, I, I want to be effective. I want to be able to get my work out into the world Certainly. as effectively as possible. So I'm clearly aware of attempting yeah. to be not too weird, but just Certainly. weird enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Whereas, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have that illusion. No. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a pleasure as always, Heron. I think these things are going to go in whatever direction they take. I, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you take care, Heron. Okay. I'll talk to you next week. Good night. See you.